0: Hi, everyone. Before we get to the show, I wanted to let you know about my new on demand course for discovering and developing core values. On this podcast, I've chatted with many guests about the importance of incorporating core values in their life and career. High achievers will tell you it's the key to many of their accomplishments. I get asked a lot by readers of Friday Forward and Elevate about the best way to do this, and I haven't had an easy answer to date. This course is that way. The course walks you through a tested method to help you brainstorm, refine, and test a list of personal core values. The course can be completed in about an hour, but it will prompt plenty of reflection and work in the days, weeks, and months that follow. Start discovering the principles that matter most to you and get better alignment. You can learn more about the course at corevaluescourse.com. I hope you check it out at corevaluescourse.com. Now let's get to the episode.
1: The first is that as the CEO, you are the shepherd of strategy. That is the very important things of what is your purpose as a business? And in our case, it was to have the best products available in our category and do it better than anyone else in the world. Because without that, you really don't have a reason to exist.
0: You're listening to The Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Christine Gregory. It's up to us to live the legacy that was left for us and to leave a legacy that is worthy of our children and future generations. Our guest today, Robert Rosenberg, inherited a business from his father and turned it into one of the world's most recognizable brands. He's the former CEO of Dunkin' Donuts. And during his leadership tenure, he grew the company from 100 stores and 10 million in sales to 6,500 stores worldwide with over 2.5 billion in global annual revenue. Robert is also the author of the new book, Around the Corner to Around the World, where he shares the history of his tenure and shares the lessons he learned along the way. Robert, welcome, it's great to have you on the Elevate podcast.
1: My pleasure, Robert, thank you for the invitation.
0: So I, I probably drove uh, by no less than 10 Dunkin' Donuts this morning, as as, as happens in, in the Boston area. So if any, anyone from the Northeast, you can't go probably five minutes without seeing a Dunkin' Donuts. So that's that's today. But I don't, I'd like to wind back the clock uh, about the beginning. So you've had a remarkable career. You're When you're 25, your father handed you the reins of his company, Universal Food Systems, which included Dunkin' Donuts at the time. So what, what did it look like when you took it over? What were the conditions? Was your dad, was he retiring? Was he just done? Or, or were you even prepared for this role? Or I, all of these things I'd love to understand.
1: Yeah, it was, uh, to say the least, a breathtaking moment. Uh, I had sort of grown up in the family business and sort of you know, worked above the store, so to speak. I had lots of different jobs as a kid. And I expected to join the family business, uh, when I graduated business school, but absolutely had no idea that I would be asked to helm this business called Universal Food Systems in 1963. And, and it, it was a, a challenging decision for a young kid at the time, 25. And and there were some steps I took that may be useful to others that uh, sometimes you don't get the chance to decide when important choices are going to come into your life. And in this case, this one presented itself very early and um, and I had prepared myself by virtue of learning my trade and gone to hotel school and worked in different jobs in the, in the business. My father and my uncle, uh, who was a CPA, my father was an eighth grade educated guy and a real entrepreneur, uh, had built an industrial feeding business. That was the, those are trucks that went around to construction sites and small uh, offices and factory sites where people would come outside and stand in line and get coffee hand and that business was reasonably successful until about the end of the 1940s, right after the Second World War, when vending machines started to come into play and, and started to put a dent in the business and in desire to, to sort of diversify the business and keep their dreams of business success alive, they decided to diversify and open a donut shop. It took them a couple of tries to get it right in a couple of years. They opened something called the Open Kettle. It wasn't very successful. Had to rip it down and restart again, which is not all unusual for people starting a business, but the partners couldn't get along. And they split up in 1955 uh, for the then book value of the business. We had to remortgage our house. My father had to buy or sell ultimately, partly I think because of my own urging as a kid, Uh, he bought rather than sold. And my uncle started a business called Mr. Donut. And those of you who grew up in Boston, you may remember that chain. And for a long time, it was uncertain which of the two businesses, Duncan or Mr., We're going to emerge on top. So it was against that backdrop of uh, of a broken partnership, family conflict of immense proportions.
0: So I assume that destroyed the family at that. At
1: at that, it put a big serious Uh, dent. Put it back (laughs) together years later, but for for numbers of years, uh, which also passed on to a second generation between my cousin by marriage, who was also my counselor at camp, and myself, Uh. uh, also carried on the feud for a number of years as well until. We emerged and vanquished, but but that was the backdrop of of what I was being asked to take over. My dad left me a company not called Dunkin' Donuts, but but asked me to take over a company called Universal Food System. Eight little businesses, one of which was Dunkin', and uh, there was a twenty hamburger style operations called Howdy Beef and Burger, House of Pancakes, a vending company, an industrial feeding business, a cafeteria business. Eight diverse businesses. It, it was.
0: Uh, so had you planned? Had, I mean, this. I have 100 questions, but had, had you planned it? To, like, was the plan that you were going to go in and take it over? It doesn't sound like this was a five-year plan. Like, but, but, so were you planning on working in the business and then going and doing something else?
1: No, it was my plan to, to join the business. We weren't really, never had a specific job. I, I was given the responsibility to report to the administrative vice president when I graduated business school. Yeah and uh, to find a place where I could add value. And it was during that time that I had really taken a real keen look at to see if some of my hypotheses about how to fix the business, which it wasn't on its way to, to bankruptcy, but it had really leveled off I was earning about $100,000 a year in pre-tax profits. And while in business school, I had the opportunity to take courses in strategy and take uh, courses in retailing. And, and I, I came to the conclusion, even at a young age, it certainly wasn't prepared to be a CEO, but I had some insights. Yeah. And one of which was that a, a young business can die as much from indigestion, having too much on its plate, as from starvation, not enough people and not enough capital. And that was my hunch. And so it took like six or seven weeks to look around. My dad had asked me immediately after I graduated to take it over. And he was obsessed. By the fact that my uncle, who had started Mr. Dunnett, had overtaken him, in their own family circles they used to, you know, run each other down in front of friends and neighbors <laughs> about who really started this business and who was the better businessman. And it looked like we were losing. <laughs> and in a fit of pique, a 48-year-old healthy dad, who I guess wasn't quite sure how to fix the problems, of too much on his plate, was now facing a competitor who had only one streamline uh, concept to develop. So he was
0: 48 when he turned over the reins.
1: Yeah, he was 48 and I I was 25. So this is not
0: retirement age.
1: No, no. In fact, while I was in my second year in business school, my dad had taken me to New York with him and we met with a private equity buyer. He was earning $100,000 in pre-tax profit and was trying to sell the business because he was so, I think, embarrassed by the fact that he might lose this war with Mr. Donut. He tried to sell the business for a million and a half dollars. In those days, the tax brackets would have allowed him to be a millionaire after taxes, which was his goal, and no one would be willing to pay it. So he had turned the day-to-day operations over to an executive vice president, and it was my guess that the executive vice president, rather than dealing in strategy, was dealing in tactics, and the problem with the business was an inappropriate strategy. Too many businesses, too many directions, not enough focus. How many
0: people for those six or seven businesses that you just listed were there?
1: In terms of what the peril was, I'm not quite sure, but but it was in the hundreds, clearly. It was far spread out, and some of them were company-owned stores, uh, certainly the cafeterias, the vending machine company, were the other businesses, many of which are franchised, but they were company companies. So, so you, you took over a holding company. I took over a holding company. That's yeah. exactly right. And um, in order to to try to keep it from being sold, because uh, as I took over and started, to, we started to focus, the management team and myself, on one of the businesses and sort of robbed the others of resources, and either divest ourselves or get out or close them down. The pressure kept up to try to sell the business all all the way through. through. The better we did, the higher the price. Was that your dad's pressure? Yeah, my dad was a a child of depression. He had seen his own father go bankrupt in a market in in Dorchester, which is a suburb of Boston, a part of Boston, not a suburb, but a part of the city. And and it scarred him and uh, he he had dropped out of school Partly, I think, to help support the family. And I mean, it, was a, it was a tough, scarring experience of depression, yeah. as yeah. our most recent recession has been for lots of our fellow citizens. And once I was in and began to start to, to see a different strategy and enjoy some success, uh, I, <laughs> I resisted the sale of the business, believing that once it's sold, it's gone. And we really had a real opportunity before us. And well, well, how much equity did you have? <laughs> did I you had didn't? no equity. Right. All I had was suasion and the love of my father. <laughs> Selling wasn't really in your interest either. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's probably true. Nor in my family's interest either. In the book, I tell the story about how he, we had convened at my brother's graduation at 67, 1967 around a table in a Howard Johnson, front of my brother's graduating prep school, and my father put the Put the question to the whole family, weren't we far better off to sell? At that point in time, uh, the price had gone to seven and a half million dollars from consolidated foods yeah. that I was about to turn down. And, uh, and there was a lot of pressure. It, it, was, it was sweat time for me. Uh, I was turning down the offer for the entire family to cash out.
2: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time available 33 inch all-terrain tires and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town. And not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all new Lexus GX luxury beyond limits, experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.
0: So yeah, I mean, how do you, I know a lot of people struggle with this, but how did you balance or did your strategy change balancing the family matters with health of the business or pure business decisions you would have made had no family been involved?
1: Basically the the latter. Uh, I I came away from business school, as I said, not as a 25 year old, as a cocky kid, Uh, without an awful lot of what I would call now and what's generally termed emotional intelligence, did have some of the tools to understand that strategy and organization were critical. And if those were right and you really had a a purpose where you had a business that offered the consumer a better option than what was else in the marketplace, you really had something of value. And that was buoyed by that belief. And and we put that into effect. We, We really niched down, we focused, and within five years, we were a public company, the 100,000 pre-tax profit had now grown to $850,000 in a matter of five years. And we were the third company to go public. In order to keep the company from being sold, I had to agree to go public as fast as I possibly could. And, and that's how we were public by 1968. So yeah, the 60s ended well,
0: but then the 70s, the business was, was struggling. I think you talk about the board even attempted to replace you. So what
1: happened? I began to do that. I mean, the tension between what I would call experimentation and exploitation seemed to be always present in a sort of the art of management. How much do you really pay attention to sort of polish up the diamond in the rough, which in our case was the Dunkin' Donut business? And when we did that in the first five years, we were extraordinarily successful. We standardized the menu, standardized markets, standardized store design, pricing, um, how we were going to go to market with franchise opportunities, advertising. All of those things worked and we were incredibly successful. Unfortunately, you can't put an old head on a young body. And I began to make the very same mistakes that my dad did years ago. I began to, to redefine the strategy of a focused coffee and donut company to become a franchise business. We were growing earnings at 50% compounded. And I thought, my goodness, you know, the seduction of Wall Street and being highly you know, touted as a wunderkind and decided that the best way to do that is if I could franchise many businesses simultaneously. So I changed the mission of the business, and I had an entirely inappropriate objective, which was to continue growing earnings at 50% compounded. Little did I realize at 30 years old, if I kept that up, that I'd be larger than the gross domestic product of the United States. It was crazy.
0: Yeah, that is a tough threshold compounding to try to keep (laughs) up. you so, sell a lot of franchises, which sounds and like and you to do. It. I sell a lot of
1: franchises, and, but I started other businesses, started Charles Goodlife Fish and Chips, started the conversations with IBM about learning centers to remediate kids. I could franchise. I could franchise with Hat Corporation of America. When JFK stopped wearing hats, they had probably one a dash Aberdashry So I was busy doing that, opening up Japan. I was also on the, in the chairs to become president of the National Franchise Association. So I had done the very same thing way overextended my organization and myself personally and almost ran the company and everybody that was following me off a cliff.
0: So there's, this is a really good lesson and it's an interesting if everyone's paying attention at home. I, I always say like, I, I'll talk to these entrepreneurs and they have a great business and suddenly they're starting four businesses and then I check in with them a year later and all of those businesses are kind of okay, but now the core business is not so much of a great business anymore. You basically did the opposite of the playbook that got the business in good shape in the first. But what made you go from more focused, fewer brands to then, was it just the Wall Street allure of bigger, better, faster?
1: Yeah, and I was also influenced. I'd met a guy by name Al Lappin who ran the National House of Pancakes. That was his vision. He yeah. was a me in the Chairs at the International Franchise Association. And I fell in love with his idea and, uh, and took it as, a, as my own. He wanted to buy us to join his uh, franchising conglomerate. I demurred that, but I liked his thinking, and so I basically, at the time, was shooting from the hip, and you can't do that yeah. if you're going to run a public company, or even if you're going to run any company with lots of people who are relying upon you to be thoughtful and develop the right plans that are consistent with your resources and that really meet reality. And I didn't do any of those things, and and paid a fearful price. And when I got out of business school. As I said, one of the key elements of a successful business, not only the right strategy, but also the right organization. I recruited classmates of mine to join me out of Goldman Sachs that had gone from business school into investment banking. In those days, everybody went into consulting or investment banking. And the ones that that were my friends from classmates were investment banking. And I got them to leave Goldman and come join me in Boston. Hard sell, took me a couple of years.
0: So yeah, you had a team full of bankers. That's why you were wanting to go.
1: <laughs> well, it turned out to be to be a lot better than bankers. They were actually the strength of the business as we moved along. But we'll talk about that later, I'm
0: sure. So, how how did you sort of rebuild trust with the team after coming through that crisis and and coup and saying sorry? I had the wrong
1: strategy. Well, that's the turning point. The turning point was coming to the realization uh, after one of my friends left the company. Uh, because he had lost faith in my leadership, rightfully so. And uh, the board had become disenchanted. But before that had happened, I come to the realization myself that the fault lied not outside, but inside with me, and that I had to better learn uh, the importance of going back to the things that made us successful, not only in terms of product and, and focus, but also in terms of planning and developing guardrails for myself uh, so that I wouldn't go off the rails again like I had, uh, uh, utilize the board more thoroughly, did a much better job of planning. And we started to go out into the hamlets and the towns where we had franchisees, invite our franchisees in to help us. We had to apologize for the error of our ways, me in particular. But I had to learn religion. I had to learn a better way and had to grow up. And so when I was 25, we were successful 25 35 to 30. Thirty, I, I made some terrible mistakes and at 35 began to acquire some of the skills necessary to be a better CEO.
0: And where, where did those skills come from? Did they come from peers, sort of mastermind concept or, or more mentors? Well,
1: where did it come from? All of the above. Some of it came from reading. Some of it came from seminars. I would say most of it came from my colleagues within the business themselves and different mentors that I had sort of picked as as good role models in, in terms of the right way to lead so it was a combination of learning which started then and continued on to this day it's it's sort of one of the hallmarks of what i feel are is essential for any leader if you really are worthy of your salt you have to keep growing and learning new things and new ways and there's lots and lots of ways to acquire it. and you have to do an awful lot of listening and a lot less talking
0: so, Duncan's one of these businesses. What was the business called at the time, sort of in the
1: 70s? It was called Dunkin' Donuts. We went public as Dunkin' Donuts. As Dunkin' Donuts, yeah. 68. From 63 to 68, it was Universal Food Systems. We went public as Dunkin' Donuts, and by, by 69, I had sold all the other eight businesses off. We were only focusing on one business. It wasn't until 70 or 71 that I began to start to, to diversify to keep the, the beat up at 69 or so. And I never changed the name of the business and stopped the other other businesses that I was exploring and changing the mission and extending the brand too far. I'm ex- extending the organization too far too fast.
0: So when you decided Duncan was the business, that was part of, that was the decision when you then started scaling off all the other businesses?
1: That was started both in 63 when I reached that decision, lost yeah. it in 69 or 68 when we went public, and then regained it again in 73 after we had gone through this terrible period of flirting with diversification in a significant way
0: so what happened when you went public with the relationship to family and the uncles and how did that stuff uh because now your dad was out your family was set right i know where mr donut's still around
1: right because i i can remember it as a kid yeah yeah well mr donut had been sold in 68 the same time my father was pressuring me to sell the consolidated foods at that point in time there were an awful lot of uh, packaged goods companies that had realized that half the food in the United States was being sold through restaurants as opposed to supermarkets, and everybody was diversifying and trying to buy uh, fast food operations. And uh, Everybody had been selling out. Burger King sold uh, to General Mills, uh, uh, to Pillsbury. Uh, Red Lobster had sold to General Mills. Everybody had been selling out at that time. Yeah. And this Donut uh, had lost the Donut Wars by 68, and they had sold for $6 million, I think, international multi-foods. And so the donor war sort of came to at least for temporarily to an end.
0: So everyone was good until the holidays holidays were back on?
1: No, (laughs) not quite. It (laughs) took took a little bit longer time to to piece it all together. And and, uh, in a family business, uh, most businesses in the world today are family businesses. And unfortunately, only about a third of them make it to the next generation. And then lesser, uh, close to 10 or 12%, make it to the third generation. Because there are lots of potential issues that exist in family business that often don't exist in other corporate enterprises. and uh, Because you've got the pressure, not only of running a business, but also reconciling an awful lot of emotional issues of family in there as well too. And we were not totally absolved from that. So my father uh, cashed out that first day and took not a million and a half dollars, but four yeah. and a half and Oz has still ended up with almost 50% ownership in the company, moved 80 miles away to New Hampshire to start a harness racing breeding and racing business, huh. and uh, Fully had told me that you know I was in charge, only to find out from my own experience and from those of others I have met who have taken <laughs> family businesses that a founder and is due all the respect in the world because without a founder, there would be no business. Yeah, You really owe it to the founder and they should always be respected for that. But if you are to change a business uh, and to grow a business, it requires a lot of change. In our case, we had to change our strategy, change the organization, and in fact, even change the name of the company itself from Universal Food Systems to Dunkin' Donuts. And, and the founder, even though he lived 80 miles away and never came to the office, still thought he was in charge. <laughs> And that's not unusual as I run into more sons or, or heirs of family businesses that take them over. Those kinds of transitions, when it comes, and you have to find new ways, oftentimes find it very difficult to have to overcome some of those, those issues. In addition to that, if you have brothers and sisters, there are family issues. There are people that are members of management and those that aren't. There are every, many of them are stockholders and stockholders to different extents. And all of which can build an an immense amount of of issues that require, a lot of TLC, a lot of tender care. In 2017,
0: entrepreneur John Rampton was frustrated with the available calendar tools, which led him to create Calendar.com. Calendar.com allows all of your different calendars to come together in one place. It also has some great features that solve many of the common frustration of team calendars. Smart links with notifications ensure you never need to worry about double booking or no-shows. The Find a Time feature compares everyone's schedules at once, finding the optimum time to meet, no more emailing back and forth trying to find out when everyone is free. And you also get analytics that will give you reports that show how you and your team are spending your time, allowing you to be more efficient. If you're looking to make yourself or your team more efficient this year, head over to calendar.com now to start your 30-day free trial and see the difference for yourself. That's c a l e n d a r dot com. So where do you sit on the spectrum? I have I have a bunch of good friends. And I've been a lot of these forums with people family businesses. And they're pretty. I don't hear a lot in between. There's either my kids will never work in the business, or this is a. From these experiences, they kind of set definitive rules. Either way, did you? Do you, you assume you had kids? What did they? What did they end up doing? Were they near the business at all?
1: My children had no interest in joining. Yeah. The family business. That was that was not my wish. My wish was right. that they would have come into the family business, but they elected not to, and uh, they had their own careers and 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 successful at them. But my wish would have been to build a generational business with families if they were qualified and competent at it. Uh, I, I don't think you can have a hard, fast rule. I think it really depends upon the skills of the people. A lot of it, you have to love the business. In order to be good at it, you got to love it. And you got to have skills and you have to have character issues that are necessary to, to take over responsibility. So it's yeah. just one simple, one formula fits all. It depends on... If the stars are aligned properly, in my father's case, you know, it took both of us, it took him to found it. But quite truthfully, it was successive generations of managements that made it successful. He wasn't on the road to success. Otherwise, a 48-year-old father wouldn't turn to a 25-year-old son and ask him to take over the business. He didn't quite know what to do, how to fix it. Yeah. And so, had I not been in the running, my guess is it never would have existed, or it would have faltered. So, there's no one easy answer. By the same token, there are issues that have to be managed in a, in a family business that's also publicly owned and not even publicly owned, just in a family business that require an awful lot of thoughtfulness. It goes way beyond, and I wish I had known this better at the time, it goes way beyond just strategy, organization, communications, crisis management, the things I think a CEO does. When it's a family business, you also have to up your communications within the family and get them on board and. a
0: well, I want to come back to that question of what what you think a CEO's responsibility was. But I want we're talking about strategy. One of the things I I, I remember this was part of my training. Now this was. 20-something years ago, uh, coming out of school at a, at a consulting firm, was the sort of, you know, everyone knows Dunkin' Donuts, right? And they think it's the donuts, but it wasn't the donuts, it was the coffee, right? <laughs> the C plus one formula. So that's another, that's another same nuance, different level, really understanding what what brought people into Dunkin' Donuts what
1: was not the donut, right? It was the coffee. That's correct. That's correct. But we didn't always realize that. That, that was a discovery in the early 1990s. Wow. I mean, that's a long time away. That's a whole generation away before we came to that realization.
0: Yeah, that that's actually when my training was. And I remember there's certain things I remember. I remember stories like this and then saying that Duncan had tested different things like putting the cue horizontally along the donut case so that while you were waiting for your coffee, you had to stare at all these <laughs> Donuts. Uh, But the C plus one formula. Right. A lot of businesses don't understand what their core asset is, whether, as you were saying before, the brand is an asset or there's a product within the brand that sort of that's what brought everyone in. I mean, it could have been Dunkin' Coffee. And in fact, now it's just Dunkin', right? That's just Dunkin'. And when I started,
1: coffee wasn't the prime driver. It took a lot of iterations and changes. We changed the way we went to market, uh, broadened distribution from an experience I had in the Philippines. We changed in the 80s and we changed the configuration of the store away from a question mark counter to self service and paper cups, all of which were wrenching choices when we had to make them, but tended to change the business away from a, what are we would call a second generation bakery because all the bakeries started to disappear and emerge into supermarkets. When Fred the Baker was our spokesman, time to make the donuts was our claim. Yeah. And, and as we continued to change the business, we had to go back and revisit what we did. As we, a result of changing our business, we had flipped the percentage from beverages and, and bakery products backside. So we went from 40% beverage and 60% baked goods to 60% beverages and 40% baked goods. But that took a period of about 10 or 12 years of massive transitions and a lot of the ways we went to market to come to that conclusion. And it was a new marketing guy from Reebok, a guy by the name of Will Cussell, who came in and said, you guys should do a positioning study. You're not as crisp about who you are and what really makes you special. And that was the result. The guy comes in and takes a look and begins to present us with something called C plus 1 equals 3. And I said, I spent $250,000. The C plus one equals three. And then he began to explain how our business had changed and how we had to go to market. And we had to retire Fred the Baker. And we ultimately made Beverages the lead and most of our ads. And slowly but surely that emerged into America Runs on Duncan campaign, which is a fabulous campaign, which actually took place after I left the company. We yeah. built on the work that we had done in that positioning study.
0: So based on your learning, you alluded to this before on your learnings of your your good period, your bad period, then your good period. what, What are the most important things that a CEO
1: does as part of their role? You know, every day, you know, you literally have tons of things that come in over the transom that demand your attention. And if you're not careful, you know, they take up all of your time. And that's, in fact, what I found when I joined the company in 63 was happening to the executive vice president who was running the business. You end up dealing in tactics, not in terms of really what's important. So over the years, I I wish I could tell you that I knew all of this at 25, but I didn't, it was as a result of doing the job, I came to the conclusion there are four essential things that you really have to shepherd and get right in order for a business to be successful. The first is that as the CEO, you are the shepherd of strategy. That is uh, the very important things of what is your purpose as a business? And in our case, it was to have the best products available in our category and do it better than anyone else in the world. Because without that, you really don't have a reason to exist. Yeah. Second as to what was your mission? What do you want to be in the next three to five years? What are the key objectives? In our case, it was ultimately after I decided we couldn't grow at 50% to grow between 15 and 20% compounded in earnings. And what are the four or five levers? That bridge scarce resources to the achievement of those objectives. That you're going to put your time and attention of the organization toward to achieve those objectives. It was our considered judgment that no organization, including the United States government, can't do anything more than four to six things at a time really well. And you got to be very careful of which ones those are, because if you pick the wrong ones, if you decide you want to, what you want to be, which means what you won't be as well. And if you pick the wrong objectives, as I learned in the 69 through 73 time period you're ultimately not going to be successful so that's the first element the second element of what i think a ceo does is basically recruit and retain an organization and motivate it to achieve those that strategy and capable of achieving that that strategy and that, that was a critical part of what we did both in terms of compensation programs in terms of things that we did the kind of people we hired the kind of team we had the kind of culture that we developed Those were all critical elements uh, that a CEO has to pay a lot of attention to and get right. The third thing is communication. So the first is get the strategy, right? Second is get the organization right. The third thing is communication, which is a massive job. You can't just say it once or twice or put it on a piece of paper. It's to align all the constituencies of the business behind that strategy. That requires going out into the field. It requires bringing people in requires continually saying it over and over again. You say it once, you put it in a piece of paper. People are so busy with their day-to-day lives, they don't necessarily absorb it or understand it or have a chance to fully explore it, understand its importance. And that is a continuing activity. I think of the CEO as chief communications office. And the last element is crisis management. In the course of any business, you are gonna have threats to the business, (laughs) called existential threats. Survival of the business we face. Maybe. a
0: lot of those in the last year for a lot of people, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, exactly right. Uh, and
1: handling how you handle crisis, which the country is living through right this minute, is how you hand, one handles crisis is very, very critical. That's another element of what a CEO does is how to organize for the handling of crises. So those are the four really critical elements I thought you had to get right in order to be an effective CEO. Beyond that, I think you also have to have some personal qualities that make you acceptable as a leader. Among those, are, you know, a trust and integrity. I learned the hard way humility, which I which came as a result of my failures of that second five-year era from '69 to '73. Valuable lessons that I wouldn't quickly forget. You know? Sometimes failure can be as a as good, if not better, a teacher than success if you're prepared to accept it prepared to, to acknowledge it, take responsibility for it. And because as a leader, I, I really do believe that, that uh, basically when it goes wrong, you know, it is the responsibility of the person at the top to take the blame because it's on their watch, his or her watch that that occurs. And when things go right, you share the rewards and you share the glory with the people that helped create it. and uh, Sort of a personal motto of mine in terms of how, how to behave. So it's a combination of get the things right, the four or five things that you have to do as a CEO, and you have to make sure that, that you're worthy in terms of characteristics as a person to be worthy of leadership. It's, it's an honor to lead people. They're putting a lot of faith and trust in you, and, and you owe it to them. You owe them the best that you got, and, and to keep growing and keep learning and keep trying to protect them and help them and create the right environment so, so that everybody flourishes.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. You know, you talk about some just tried and true things of leadership. And I think it's been really hard, particularly for us in the last year, to everyone agrees on objective lists of characteristics of leadership, but then they become very polarized in, in using that as a measuring stick for, you know, for leaders. I I think either in business or politics or otherwise and and not changing the story around the attributes, right? The attributes should stay the same. Truth is the same, humility is the same, responsibility is the same. And that's been one of my real struggles in the last year. I mean, I wrote a post that, that compilated a bunch of different lists of the characteristics of leaders And there was 10 or 15 things. And I would say everyone responded, this is a great list. This is awesome. I agree. No, no, no arguments, right, about the list. But then anytime there were criticisms of leaders as part of, and, and, you know, a lot of political leaders as part of COVID or whatever, then everyone jumps in and has totally different lens and characteristic looking at. And I'm like, but what happened to that? (laughs) What happened to that list? Um, So uh, it's been a rough year for
1: leadership. Yeah, I, I think that there's more to do with the political spin than it does to do with the f- fact that the characteristics change.
0: No, they don't change, right? But yeah, people... Exactly right. They, they
1: are steady. <laughs> truth is truth. Right. Trust is trust. I mean, I have my own ways of measuring trust. And it starts with uh, public and private conversations are the same. That's uh, sincerity. Uh, second is competence. But th- there are ways to know if you want to. But if your objective is to gain political power, or or, or to, to confuse the followership by parsing words, maybe you can do that. But ultimately, I think the standards are the standards. Someone said, "Character is destiny." I totally believe character is destiny, and there is a right character and a true north, and there isn't. And uh, i one shouldn't get confused. It isn't that confusing, in my view. No.
0: So any, any uh, favorite lessons we're missing from around the corner to around the world?
1: Well, there's a lot of them. I mean, basically, I, you know, I really view this sort of the <laughs> book as a buffet of issues, uh, some of which we touched on, others we haven't. For example, for those would-be entrepreneurs, uh, I think the whole notion of franchising is not as well understood as it could be. It is not only a way for a family to gain financial independence that might heretofore not have been available to them and reduce risk of business ownership. They also can be the the vehicle for creation of a massive wealth. There are Dunkin' Donor franchise owners that own networks of hundreds and hundreds of stores that are worth tens of millions of dollars, all starting from a single store. And it's a story that I think is worthy of any would-be entrepreneur. I think the lesson of of apprenticeship, you know, the three to five years of 10,000 hours that Malcolm Gladwell talks about, one of the reasons why I think franchising may be successful because it telescopes those hours is useful to would-be entrepreneurs. So those people who are scaling a business, as we did, from what I'd call our adolescent phase to a more mature phase. The whole notion of how we went about our planning, the language we used, the management by objective system that we operated on uh, is very useful, I think. The way we hired people in terms of defining assignments and, and trying to build a culture for fit, I think, are useful. The whole notion of building on people's strengths rather than trying to remediate their weaknesses are useful tips to others who may be building, and for larger companies, the way we organized our board and the rhythm of the board in terms of uh, doing position and SWOT analysis to start with on a five-year plan and our annual plan and then a table of organization in terms of promotability, all of which I think could be useful to larger companies as well. And and even for individuals who aren't in business, the book talks a little bit about how I utilize the planning language of the company uh, to plan my own life. I'm now going from my third stage to my fourth different iteration of my life. And I define the same language of what I want to be, what I want to have and what four or five levers I'm going to pull in order to guide me from one stage of life and from from one kind of sets of activities to another. As I aged and as I as I encountered, you know, different opportunities and things change, uh, I utilize the same planning process and it was useful in my own life and useful for my kids and my family.
0: I, I've done the same thing. I actually found organizational system planning stuff to be the same exact process of uh, uh, personally, and I've leveraged have leveraged that dramatically. Well, I know you talked about some of these earlier, but I always liked, last question, this could be singular or repeated, but what's a personal or
1: professional mistake that you made that you learned the most from? Uh, the transformational moment came to me in the early 1970s. In the midst of of, uh, of this change in strategy, earnings plateauing out, the ultimate loss year before that occurred. One of my best friends from business school, who we traveled to school together, who joined me from Goldman, who was my CFO, left the company because he lost faith in my leadership. And the franchisees became restive and started a class action suit to to express their dissatisfaction. In the midst of all that, I was sitting in my living room chair. And I was reading a book by David Halberstam called The Best and the Brightest. And it was about the Kennedy and Johnson's administration of the Vietnamese War and how the best and the brightest, read that, Ivy Leaguers, were running the government, running Duncan, too, basically failed to go into the hamlets and townships to get the real data among the community leaders about really what was going on, while the Viet Cong were able to win the hearts and minds of the people in the communities. They were relying, our, our best and brightest were relying on body counts, third-hand information, information that you know, reinforce their belief that their strategies were right. Hmm. And, and Halberstam laid the blame at what he called a Greek word called hubris. That's translated to arrogance. And I sat there in my chair and said, my goodness, Halberstam could just as well be talking about me. And that provided a, like a bolt of lightning, a transformational moment for me personally. Uh, no longer would I blame my followership for my problems. I would take full responsibility. Went back to my team. I shared with them my own epiphany. We began to plan a whole different way of dealing in every which way, in terms of also visiting 100 stores and going to our franchisees, apologizing, I personally, for the the error of my ways, coming really fully around, taking full responsibility, not 50-50, not 90-10, but 100%. That's the job of leadership and my view, and we began on a new path that stood us in good stead for the next 35 years, and I'm 30 years, and to this day, of the foundation upon which the business was built. But it took that kind of era and that kind of realization and that kind of shift in my own personal thinking as leader. If I was going to be leader, it was my responsibility to get it right. And if I couldn't get it right, if I couldn't define reality, if I didn't understand what my complicity was in it, there was no hope.
0: That is a profound lesson that I think a lot of us could learn about. And clearly, you've demonstrated a lot of humility and vulnerability as a leader. So, Robert, thank you for sharing your story with us. Uh, you've, you've set a fantastic leadership example, and it was amazing for me to hear uh, sort of the genesis story of this iconic brand that I've, I've grown up with here in New England. My pleasure. Thank you very
1: much again for the invitation for you and your audience.
0: All right. Where can people learn more about you and your book? And uh, yeah, where can they find you?
1: Uh, The book is sold through booksellers everywhere and it's published by uh, HarperCollins Leadership. And uh, there's a book site and uh, you you can go there to get it around the corner to around the world. You go to Amazon and you can see we've been we've gotten some I'm pleased to say some very good reviews. People have enjoyed the book. Uh, We've got four (laughs) point five so far for 61 or 62 reviews, which pleases me to no end. Hopefully, I, the reason for writing was to provide some, some benefit to future leaders or to anybody who finds themselves in a leadership position, uh, whether it's a family, whether it's a community, or whether it's a business. And those are the places where you can get it.
0: All right. So to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Robert and his new book on the detailed episode page at robertgrazer.com Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating.